Justin Jefferson open with one-on-one -on -one routes, and then he's run the in-and-out route to get a touchdown. He's run over top to get a touchdown. Empty backfield, second and goal. Cousins to the end zone. Touchdown! Redemption for Chad Beebe! <laughs> Hey now, hey now, hey now, happy Thanksgiving everyone, it's Steve Bennett, this is the Sportscasters Podcast, winding down season 10, this is episode 24 I think of season 10, we're going to have a few more left, and then next year I've already started uh, the planning for what will be season, the 10 year anniversary, season 11, and the 10 year anniversary of the Sportscasters. And I'm looking forward to that. If you have any ideas, anything you think we should do for Season 10, let me know. All right, today on the podcast, we've got a good one. Uh, Bob McKenzie, who I think is often described probably appropriately as the Adam Schefter of Canada or the Adam Schefter of hockey. Uh, either way, I think he's close to 2 million followers on Twitter. And uh, he's partially retired now, but he has a new book out. And it's a book that I thought was going to be in the book club, and then I thought wasn't going to be in the book club, and then ended up being in the book club. It's called Hockey Heroes, and in a minute, we'll take a break, and we'll talk to Bob about that. Then, we'll have a book club update. There's only one book left in 2020, and then at some point in the next couple episodes, I'm going to do a book club Christmas recommendations uh, thing. I don't think I'll do that today, probably next time. Since there won't be any books left at the end of the season, I'll recommend books as potential Christmas gifts if that's something you're interested in doing this year for someone. And then we're going to do an interview with Damon Hack, who is one of the nicest dudes in sports media. Not even close. It's an unbelievable guy. He covers golf for the Golf Channel. And the Masters was a couple weeks ago. I recorded these interviews a week ago Thursday, so about 10 days ago now, and I sat on them a little bit longer than I expected to, and there's really no reason why. It's one of those times where I just didn't get in here for whatever reason to finish this up. Part of the reason was I was finishing the pilot for the 24-inch podcast, and if you listened to last week's podcast, you heard Hollywood Dave Rollins, who was on with me in One Last Thing, and we talked about how I have a new podcast debuting called the 24-inch podcast. It's a podcast about Hulk Hogan. Uh, we're going to cover mostly his 84 to 93 run. Uh, but the first episode is on King Kong Bundy in WrestleMania 2. And we recorded it. We've given it to some VIPs to listen to. And the feedback's been great. Uh, I've been really pleased with the feedback. And actually, I was blown away. I know I told Dave when we recorded it, or ahead of recording it, that we might do it, you know, two, three times. He's not ever done a podcast. So I thought, you know, maybe it'll take us a couple times. But the first time we did it, I was like, we're not doing that again. You know, I felt like it was as good as it was going to be. Uh, so I guess that's part of the reason why I didn't get in here to do that, uh, this podcast. Because I was kind of working on that, a little distracted. Uh, but 
I'm excited for you guys to hear that 24-inch podcast be out soon, real soon, uh, probably by the time the next sportscasters come out, the first, the pilot, episode one of 24-inch podcast will be out there, and I'm looking forward to you hearing it. Uh, and then one last thing today, it's going to be a good one and maybe a little bit heavy, but uh, Wolfgang Van Halen released his first song called Distance. And it's a tribute to his father. And if you haven't seen it, it has a beautiful video with all kinds of home home video footage of Wolfie and his dad. And, of course, Wolfie lost his dad October 6th. And I'll be honest, it made me re-examine the relationship I have with my father. And I'll talk about that in one last thing. First things first, before we get to that, you know, I started the show last time uh, with a rant about the Ivy League canceling hockey. And it's interesting because I did get a few emails from people who disagreed with me. And then I also got a few emails from players on the team, parents of players on the team, who really thank me for speaking out and giving them a voice. You know, my main point was this, and I don't know if people understood it or not but my main point was you can cancel ivy league hockey but one you're not canceling college hockey and two you're also not making the players on the yale hockey team or the harvard hockey team or the princeton hockey team any safer you know my argument is college kids are much safer within the you know within the bubble of an athletic competition than they are outside of it but we we discussed that last time i just thought it was really interesting how many emails i got goes to show how polarizing this is and you know the saints played today they beat the denver broncos in what was not an nfl football game it was really a joke the broncos had a quarterback test positive for covid on thursday and the nfl did a close contact review and eliminated the other three quarterbacks on their roster because they had sat in a meeting uh, with the positive player without masks, despite being socially distanced. And now I'm sure you guys are thinking, well, you know, the NFL has these four guys and they're all really sick and they have to do what they can do. No, not a single symptom among all four guys, as far as I've heard. You know, maybe there's an update on that. Maybe one of them has developed a cough. But they basically, you know, first of all, eliminated all four quarterbacks and then also went forward with the game. And it put the Saints in a position where, you know, it's one of those games where if you lose, you're the biggest joke. You're like the Maple Leafs losing to a Zamboni driver. And if you win, it's like, well, you know, whatever. And it was a whatever kind of a win. I mean, it was 31-3. to And, I mean, the Saints, they just really ran the clock out. You know, it's like they just wanted to get out of there. And there's going to be a lot of people who say, oh, Taysom Hill was bad or whatever. And Sean Payton said very clearly in his press conference, you know, he played the game exactly the way I wanted him to play the game. You know, which meant not a lot of throwing. You know, not that many plays. It was just a really, just a dreadful, you know, non-NFL game. And, it, you know, someone made a point on Twitter saying, 
you know, this is the league in 1987 that played for three weeks where some teams had their players and some teams still had replacement players. So you had a situation where Joe Montana was playing against the UPS truck driver, throwing to Jerry Rice. You know, so that's this league. That's what they do. And, you know, anyone who's looking for me to apologize for the Saints getting this cheap win, well, we had our coach out for 16 games a few years ago for nonsense. So I guess they only owe us 15 games now. Uh, And if we get 15 more, I'll call it even. And then I'll start apologizing after that. But, you know, COVID just continues to be polarizing in sports and life everywhere. You know, everyone thinks they're so clever. They get on Twitter and they're like, wear a mask. It's like, okay, you know. And look at whether you're for, whether you're for or against masks, I think we should all be against assholes getting on Twitter and telling people to wear masks. It's like, come on, fuck off. But uh, look at, I wear it. You know, it's the rules in New York State. I follow the rules and... We're having a huge surge. And by the way, since the masking, we're almost 200 days into the mask mandate in New York State. And, you know, cases are surging. But the point here was to talk kind of about COVID and sports. And, you know, you have the Ivy League canceling, but college hockey going on. You know, the ECAC conference that the Ivy League's playing in Division One men's ice hockey has four teams this year. Um, so... Uh, hockey, college hockey going on without them. And you're seeing players at these schools into the transfer protocol, signing pro contracts. You know, so they've really hurt these schools and these programs. And we'll see how long the impact lasts. But to me, it'll be for years for those programs to rebuild, depending on how many transfers they get, how many decommits they get. We'll see. That story hasn't been told yet. And then we have the NFL, who's plowing through no matter what. You know, people keep waiting for them to add a week 18. I don't know if that's going to happen. You know, and, and maybe, you know, maybe by the time you even hear this, I'm wrong because maybe something happens where the Ravens game and Steelers game is finally canceled this week. But it seems very much like the NFL's goal is to just push through, to bowl through this. So that's their approach. The Cowboys had 30,000 fans at the game on Thursday. And then, of course, you know, many stadiums were empty uh, this weekend. I mean, the Lions Stadium on Thanksgiving was empty in Detroit, 30,000 in Dallas. You know, I'm not sure I understand that. And then hockey is still up in the air. When are they going to play? You know, because football is a TV show, and they could probably play for years and years without fans and be all right, still make money, still thrive. The NHL is not that way. You know, the NHL can't just do another bubble because that's expensive. And it's really hard when you don't have any ticket revenue coming in for a league that is super dependent on ticket revenue. You know, we've seen baseball finish, and I assume that they're going to move ahead. You know, I think a lot of these leagues are going to be a lot like the NFL in the sense that they will play, and some teams will get to play in front of fans, and some won't. And that's going to go on for probably a while yet, at least you know, I think through 2021. So it's interesting to see how this is affecting sports. And it's interesting to see what kind of an impact it has. You know, uh, the champions we've awarded in the COVID world so far, Tampa Bay and the Lakers and the Dodgers, have all been really respected for, you know, being able to push through, especially the NBA and the NHL, through their bubbles, 
you know, and then Major League Baseball had a bubble for the postseason, and they got through a rough start. I remember in April thinking, man, or I guess it was in April. When did they start? July, August, whatever it was, thinking like any day they're going to just cancel this. And they got through it, so congrats to them. Uh, But one thing, and I wasn't sure I felt this way at the beginning, uh, but one thing I have decided is that anything is better than no sports as we had from, you know, March to July. Um, you know, I'm kind of I'm kind of over, I guess, a little bit the funk I was in in August and September. You know, getting into the Saints season has definitely helped me. And I am looking forward to hopefully watching the Sabres play again someday. And I've enjoyed the college hockey I've watched so far, so I'm getting over it. But, all right, let's start the show. Here's what we're going to do. We'll take a break. We'll come back with Bob McKenzie. We'll talk a little hockey. Uh, Then I'll do the book club update. Then we'll do an interview with Damon Hack, which I want to mention in case I forget during the book club portion. His connection wasn't great. There's a few times where his connection is not perfect. And there's really nothing I can do about that. I wish I could, you know, demand that these guys went Skype to Skype with me or had the best connections. But you got to kind of take it for what you get. And Damon certainly meant nothing by it. But there are a couple times where it's not the best. I boosted it when I could and edited out some drops when I could. And for the most part, it's fine. But I should mention that there are the few minutes. And then if you're around, I'd appreciate it if you listen to uh, one last thing where I'm going to talk about how Wolfgang Van Halen's tribute to his father has had me re-examining and reappreciating the relationship I have with my father. All right, let's take a break. We'll be right back with Bob McKenzie. Our first guest today is often called the Adam Schefter of hockey. He's making a second appearance on the show today to celebrate the release of his second version of his Hockey Heroes book series. A warm sportscaster's welcome to Bob McKenzie. Hey, Bob, how are you doing today? Excellent, Steve. How are you doing? Doing really good. Really excited to talk to you again. It's been a minute, but uh, how is semi-retirement treating you? You you work a lot for retirement, I got to say. <laughs> yeah, that's why they call it semi. <laughs> it's it's good. Um, you know, I get to uh, pick and choose the times when I'm going to be busy, um, and uh, and I'm kind of out of the day to day grind. Uh, I go to a social function now. I can leave my car, my phone in the car, um, so I don't I don't need to uh, I don't need to be worried about breaking news every minute of every day. Everyday hockey heroes, volume two. Let me let me see if I got this right. 2020, not the best year. Everyone can agree on that. And I feel like I'm putting myself in your head and you're just feeling a little bit down about some of the news that's come out about kind of the culture of hockey, uh, the game I know that we both love. And you said, I got to get some of those stories about the everyday hockey heroes. It's time for another batch of those. Was that kind of the the impetus for this? Well, honestly, um, just by way of background, it was probably about three years ago right now, Simon & Schuster Canada came to me and asked me if I'd be interested in partnering with Jim Lang um, and their editor, Sarah St. Pierre, on this project called Everyday Hockey Heroes. And um, so they showed me they were doing it no matter what. Um, Jim Lang had already started working on it. 
they had the concept, they had the name. Um, they were talking about putting together a book of, of inspiring stories on and off the ice for famous and not so famous people where the common denominator is uh, an incredible love and passion for hockey. So they showed me a sample chapter on Wayne Simmons and uh, another one on a, uh, a blind hockey player um, from Windsor who uh, was now playing uh, for a, a blind team in Toronto. And, and I read the stories and I was like, wow, these are really good. I really like these. And I, I found them to be inspirational. So I, I said, yeah, I, I'd like to get involved. And so at that point, um, I wrote an introduction for the first book. I wrote a, a chapter of my own um, and uh, my everyday, and an everyday hockey hero that I found. And then came up with a bunch of other uh, subjects and people that I thought would be really good. And between myself and Jim Lang and Sarah St. Pierre, we put together the first book. It was it was really successful. People seemed to uh, to be inspired by a lot of the stories, and I think we kind of knew in the back of our mind that if the book sold well enough, that Simon and Schuster would want to do another one. Sure. So all the 2020 aside, the pandemic and everything else that's gone on, um, and you're right, it's just been a remarkably I don't know I'll just call it a remarkable year. You can fill in your own um, sure. uh, descriptor on that, but. Um, you know, I think it's that much more apropos now because of everything that's gone on in the past year. Um, that, but it's the same theme and the same purpose that we had with the first book. And it's been in the works now for more than a year. So we're not reacting to 2020 so much as just reflecting it. What are kind of the mechanics between you and Jim Lang? Like how, how like what, what does each of you do in putting the book together and then how does that work in terms of a lot of the stories that are also kind of self-told? Like, what's the balance and the structure of what each person uh, does in terms of the process of putting the book together? Well, the first thing I would say is Jim does a lot more work than I do, actual <laughs> heavy lifting, um, and I'm thankful for that. Um, but here's the thing. So when we started the Everyday Hockey Heroes Volume 2, we, we met – and uh, it probably would have been uh, more than a year ago, well over a year ago, and uh, probably like 16, 17 months ago. And we sat down at a, at a boardroom table in, at Simon & Schuster in Toronto, Jim, myself, and Sarah St. Pierre. And basically, we, we came armed with a bunch of names. And so, you know, I wanted this guy. I wanted that guy. Jim wants this person, that person. And Sarah had some great ideas as well. And we kind of put them all up on a board and we start going through them and trying to thing and make sure that we, we cut across a lot of demographics. We want to make sure that women are well represented. We want to make sure that um, LGBTQ community is well represented, people of color, um, and, and the various aspects of, of all sort of stripes of society um, that we, we, we cover a lot of different ones off. And then we go through and, and, and we just basically together, Jim reaches out to some people. I reach out to some people. Sarah reaches out to some people. We find out if they want to be involved. And if they do, then, um, then, then in many instances, Jim would do the interviewing of that person. Um, he would write a first-person story in the person's voice after interviewing them. And between Sarah and Jim, they would... Uh, they would fine-tune those stories to get them to where the people are satisfied with them. 
Um, as I said, a lot of the, a bunch of the subject matters in the book are people that I wanted desperately to be in it. Um, and so even though I didn't actually write the, the story, Jim did, and uh, in, in concert with that person, um, I still had input on that front. And as I said, uh, the introduction and the uh, and one of the chapters I write myself and uh, and obviously uh, try and bring the full value of my social media presence and to promote the book and and to do the interviews we're doing now. Yeah. You like you said, you did a chapter in the first one and, and one in this one as well. Black and white is the name of the one that you wrote this time. Uh, it's chapter one. Maybe a little bit of backstory. Why'd you choose to go this direction in this, in this one, in this in this volume? What was the inspiration for your chapter? Well, a little bit. It was the Wayne Simmons chapter in in Volume One of Everyday Hockey Heroes. Now, there was a chapter by Wayne Simmons, who just, of course, just recently signed with the Toronto Maple Leafs um, in his hometown team. But um, the the chapter on Wayne that Jim Lang worked with Wayne on and it was actually the very first chapter I read was before I came on board with volume one um, that when Jim had done it, that uh, the story of Wayne Simmons growing up in Scarborough and overcoming some economic hardship and obviously some racial issues along the way as well to become the, the NHL star that he was and, and how he gives back to the same community that he grew up in Scarborough with hockey clinics in the summer and uh what have you. So uh, that one was near and dear to me because I grew up in Scarborough as well. So I share that with Wayne Simmons. And, and it, it, so as we were getting ready for, to come up with volume two, I was wondering, what am I going to write about? What, what, what people could I find that would have some inspiring stories with a hockey team? And so I started thinking about the Wayne Simmons chapter. I started thinking about Scarborough and the fact we both grew up in Scarborough. And I thought, wow, Wayne grew up in a much different Scarborough than I grew up in because um, I'm obviously much older. Uh, the Scarborough that I grew up in playing minor hockey in the, the 1960s and 70s was quite white. And Scarborough has become known for being one of Canada's most racially diverse communities. And on top of that, I think probably holds the unofficial record for putting more black players in the National Hockey League than any other community that I can come up with. Um, I counted 10 black players from Scarborough who have gone into the National Hockey League, starting with Mike Marzen, um, who was a year, 1955 birth year. I was 56. Um, but, you know, Anson Carter, Kevin Weeks, Joel Ward, Anthony Stewart, Chris Stewart, the list goes on and on. Soon to be number 11 coming up, Akil Thomas, who scored the game-winning goal for Canada, the World Junior Championships last year. Oh, I um, remember. It's from Scarborough, and Scarborough as well. So I thought, very fascinating to me that Scarborough's put all these black players in the National Hockey League, and yet when I played, there weren't very many black kids playing hockey. Now, I, I did recall quite clearly that there were two in particular that I remembered playing against. Um, I, I remembered them because, A, they were black in a mostly white game. B, they were very good players, unlike myself, who wasn't very good. Um, these guys were these guys were quite good players. They were in the upper you know, percentile of our age group. And I remembered them because they had unique names. One was Terry Mercury, and the other one was Lindbergh Gonzalez. And uh, I always remembered those names to go with the very good players that they were and also the fact they were black in a mostly white game. It also didn't hurt that Terry was unbelievably tall. 
Um, he's six foot three now, but in Peewee, I think he was probably six foot one, six foot two. Uh, he was always the tallest kid that I ever played against in minor hockey. And Lindbergh was the opposite. He wasn't very tall. He's only, even now he's five foot seven, 165 pounds, but he was probably five foot seven and 165 pounds in Peewee. He was athletic and fearsomely strong and powerful. Um, and, uh, and a real competitor, and the, I remembered all those things about them. And I started thinking, isn't it interesting that all these black kids have gone on to play in the NHL from Scarborough, but the two best kids, the two best black kids that I played against in my age, I wonder what happened to them. I wonder what became of them. Wouldn't it be interesting to go back and, and try to touch base with them and, and compare and contrast their minor hockey experiences with my minor hockey experiences as, as a white kid growing up in Scarborough versus being black kids in the 1960s in Scarborough. And sure enough, I tracked them both down and I spent three, four hours with each guy and, uh, and they poured their hearts out to me about what their experiences were like. And it should come as no surprise, given the name of the chapter, black and white, that the difference between their experiences and my experiences were like night and day. It's interesting because you were like, you know, you had always, always remembered their names and thought about them. Were they sitting around watching your career all the time and telling everyone, hey, I played minor hockey with that guy? Obviously, right? No, 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 no because <laughs> they, they had, because I was a very nondescript player. I was okay. a faceless, uh, I wasn't good enough to have garnered any uh, attention for my hockey playing ability. Um, and I was just another player. And so they wouldn't, they probably would not have known that they played minor hockey against me back in the day. That's wild. They must say that must have been quite the surprise when you knocked on the door, huh? Well, you know, so to speak, figuratively uh, speaking. Yeah, it was easy to uh, it was easy to get hold of Terry because I knew. See, I I knew he was in the business because many years ago, I I there was a Terry Mercury who was a broadcaster, and uh, and I thought to myself, Terry Mercury, broad, and no one. He was on the radio, and then I saw a picture of him, and he was black, and I said, well, there's Terry Mercury. I remember that kid. I played hockey against him, and I kind of just forgot about it at that point. But when it came time to get hold of him for this uh, for this book project, it was really easy because he does a lot of broadcasting on Sirius XM on the Canadian stations. He does sports updates and, and what have you. So he was easy to track down. And Lindbergh wasn't too difficult to track down because – I coached my kids in hockey, minor hockey, and I was at a tournament. Oh, it would have been 20 years ago, but I was at a tournament in Toronto, and I saw a referee out on the ice, and he was black, and he had a big nameplate across the back that said Gonzalez on his nameplate. And again, I looked and I said, that's got to be Lindbergh Gonzalez, that kid I played hockey against when he was younger. And as I say, I remembered these guys and their names because their names were unique, but also because they were good players. They would never have remembered Bob McKenzie playing for Scarborough Lions or um, whatever teams I was playing back then. And so it wasn't difficult to track down either one of them as it turned out. And uh, But I was, I was really gratified to get the opportunity to talk to them about it. That's a wild story. That's really cool. You talked about how there's kind of different kinds of people, the known and the unknown, you know, like for example, there's a chapter on Andrew Cagliano known, you know, other chapters, people less known. I think there's also kind of a third character or category 
And that's people who aren't known, but they are known for their story. You know, and like maybe Jack Jablonski is an example of that. Like I didn't know who Jack Jablonski was until he had the story he has to tell, you know, and he's a part of the book as well. What was that? Were you going to say something there? Yeah. Yeah. No, I was just going to say, it's you know, as soon as volume one was over and I knew we were going to do volume two, one of the guys that I absolutely wanted to make sure he was included in, this, in, in volume two was Jack Jablonski, because like you, you know, I didn't know Jack Jablonski. Jack was a Minnesota high schooler. Um, like, like a lot of kids, I don't know the names of kids that play high school hockey in Minnesota, but we got to know it because of the, 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 the tragic and traumatic spinal cord injury that he suffered that left him paralyzed. And he was an inspiration to so many people in terms of the manner in which, you know, his attitude, um, never say die attitude that, you know, he's going to walk again and he's going to do everything he possibly can to maximize whatever he's able to do and, and, and have a real sense of purpose in his life. And what an impressive kid. And, and so his, just his presence on social media and, and a little bit of contact that I had with him through direct messaging or whatever on, on social media, um, just a, a phenomenal young man. And so for now, for him to graduate from the University of Southern California and to read his story and to, 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 to see how important it was that his family, um, uh, you know, rallied around him and supported him, the hockey community supported him, absolutely incredible story and i'm so happy that he was able to tell it in our book yeah that was the first chapter i read too because this is one of those books and i like this about it and it was also true of your uh book the other book you came on to talk on the show to talk about which had like the tragically hip chapter hockey confidential i think it was called you can kind of bounce around you can kind of bounce around in here and you know read a story here read a story there and i read that one first it's amazing he's with the kings which is really cool uh, doing work for them, and I thought that was really cool. Do you want to do a, a Hockey Heroes 3? Well, I'm wide open to it. I yeah. guess we'll see how this see how it sells. sells. And if Simon & Schuster wants to do it again. But, um, you know, it's funny because when, when Simon & Schuster first pitched the idea to me, they they suggested that this may be something that you could do every two years. Right. And yeah. that, you know, because in the off year, you, you bring it out in a paperback. Um, so yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if there's a volume three, I've already in my own mind started, you know, hear about this story, hear about this person, sure. whatever, I've already started jotting down some names and story ideas for volume three, whether it happens or not, who knows in the meantime, we're just trying to promote the hell out of this one and see if people will buy it and enjoy the stories. I was thinking about this. Do you think there's kind of a, a sleeper story in there that kind of sell, like kind of steals the show a little bit, you know, is there one you might not, you know, like maybe people would jump into the Cagliano one, you know, that name, or maybe, you know, the Jablonski name, you think of that one, but you think there's kind of a, the one you wrote, obviously is always going to get a little bit more attention. You think there's kind of a sleeper in here, kind of a top dog that will emerge as this thing gets passed around and people read it. Well, I I will say this, that there's, there's a story about Joey Gale, who's another kid from Minnesota who's now an adult, lives in Seattle. But he was, he was, his story is that of being a closeted gay teenager who, 
who just didn't feel comfortable, never came out. His family didn't know he was gay. His friends didn't know he was gay. And he played hockey. But he found it difficult to be in hockey because of the uh, there was a lot of a lot of homophobia, uh, certainly homophobic language, but also some overt homophobia that that didn't make him feel comfortable. So he pushed away from the game and actually left and and kind of extracted himself from the hockey culture that he didn't find very warm or welcoming. And and, and then he went off to university and he came out and. Uh, uh, to his friends and family, and he decided, "Hey, I love hockey. I'm, now I'm, I'm 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 out now, and I want to go back and give it another try." And and he wanted to announce, though he wanted to, you know, wanted to be more bold now that he 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 wasn't living a secret life anymore. And so he he got some pride tape, the rainbow color tape, and he put it on his hockey stick. And he was going to a men's league all star uh, game that he was playing, asked to play in. And so he showed up and put a stick in the in the dressing room and somebody looked at the, the rainbow colored tape and said, Oh, who's got the gay tape? And he says, I do. Cause I'm gay. And he was up right up front about it. And what he discovered was he was, he was warmly embraced and welcomed by the group there and his, and his men's league team. And it was a complete 180 degrees from what he'd experienced as a teenager and, and how gratifying it was. So I really like that story, but what I like even on top of it is the corollary story is, where we talk about, we we found the the um, the uh, the founders of Pride Tape, two gentlemen um, who um, Jeff McLean and Dean Petruck, who who were you know, and these are two straight white guys that decided that there was too much homophobic stuff going on, especially as it relates to sport, especially as it relates to hockey. And so they wanted, they're in marketing and they wanted to create some sort of symbol that might promote more brotherhood um, in, in the hockey community and more diversity and understanding of, of, of LGBTQ. And, uh, and so they came up with the help of former NHL players, Bill Ranford and, and Andrew Ferentz. That I found that story just to be a remarkable one where two straight white guys um, came up with this idea because they thought the, the gay community and the LGBTQ community needed some support. And, and the manner in which they went about it with help from former NHL players like Billy Ranford and Andrew Ferentz, and, uh, and how it all kind of ties into this, the symbolism of Joey Gale coming back. So I, I kind of like that, uh, that aspect of it, but that, that's one of two of many great stories for me. Absolutely. The book is called Everyday Hockey Heroes. Uh, best-selling authors Bob McKenzie and Jim Lang. Volume one is available as well. No reason you can't catch up on that one if you haven't. But it's not one of these things where if you didn't read one, you can't read two. You can read two first, go back to one, or vice versa. Uh, and like I said, you don't even have to necessarily read it from page one on. You can jump around in the book, no problem there either. Uh, it's available, you know, where you get books, believe it or not, uh, digital or uh, regular. You can hold it or you can read it on a phone or an iPad, whatever works. And I'm sure it would be a fantastic uh, little thing under the uh, tree for whatever hockey fan is on your list. Real quick, Bob, before I let you go, because I have a couple minutes left, i got to ask you two quick things about hockey outside the book, if that's okay. Yep. Uh, first thing is you, you do some work for NBC here in the United States, or have. have I, I don't know what your current post-semi-retirement plans are, if you're going to do that going forward. Doesn't matter. Here's my question. The great Doc Emmerich has called it a day 
and we will miss him here as the kind of unofficial voice of hockey in the United States. You know, he called so many Stanley Cup finals, and I'll never forget his call of the goal, uh, the often forgot sort of now goal by uh, Parisi to tie the gold medal game, which of course <laughs> is, the story is a little spoiled by uh, by Sid there a little bit later in the day, but I'll never forget that call or uh, many of his others. The Kings are the Kings is another one that stands out, but he's going to need to be replaced. Have you heard anything about that? Kenny Albert was on this podcast last week. Uh, I tried to get something out of Kenny, but there wasn't much there. Is there any reason to assume it wouldn't be Kenny? Do you think they want something else? Are you hearing anything about this? Anything on Doc? Anything you want to say about the number one, the voice of hockey in America? Well, first off, I love Doc. And uh, the first time I met Doc would have been back in the 80s. And he was, uh, I think at the time, I might have been doing Devil's play-by-play. I can't remember exactly what it was. But anyways, um, I took a a train ride from... uh, Toronto to Montreal for the NHL draft and uh, Doc was on it and I was the editor-in-chief of the Hockey News and I was just this green, wet-behind-the-ears kid <laughs> and uh, and Doc was very kind and we exchanged lots of great stories and uh, had a great train ride to, to Montreal. So that's where I got to know Doc the first time. And, um, and then uh, uh, as for the the, the future of what NBC is going to do with this play-by-play, your guess is as good as mine. Um, I'm still going to be doing some work there in studio once we, hopefully in studio, once uh, this NHL season resumes, whenever that may be in January, February, whatever. But uh, I haven't spoken to anybody about what the plans are. And they've got so many good people at uh, NBC, the pool of people that they've, They've had and Kenny Albert and I know John Forslund's done a bunch of games and there's just so many of them there that uh, whatever they decide to do, I'm sure it's going to be great. Well, I'm biased, but I hope it's Kenny. Um, but like I said, I'm biased. All right, very last thing. I'll get you out of here on this. So I haven't done much break dancing since I was a kid in the 80s, but I considered it when the Tyler Hall uh, to Buffalo news broke. I thought about learning some break dancing. Uh, just for that. What about GM Kevin Adams? How do you think his first offseason went? And uh, do you think when you when you handicap this season that may come? And I know it's difficult because, like, we don't even necessarily know that the divisions will be the divisions and all that kind of stuff. But what about the first offseason of Kevin Adams? And what about the idea that the moves are enough for the Sabres to be a playoff team or or where do you go on that? And then it's just kind of a bonus. There's a lot of OHL experts in Buffalo that popped up about five minutes before the Sabres made their pick and have been sticking around ever since. I'm not sure if they ever seen an OHL game, but they sure act like it. They know for sure the Sabres picked the wrong player from uh, what team was it? What team did these two guys play on? I can't even remember. Peterborough? Ottawa 66. Oh, Ottawa. That's right. Yeah. Ottawa 66. Everyone here knows for yeah. sure they picked the wrong one. So maybe that is a bonus too. But what about the Sabres? What about Adams? And what about our OHL experts here in Buffalo? Well, lots to unpack there. What, what I'll say about this is, is I've, I've known Kevin Adams for a long time. Knew him as a player. Knew him when he was in uh, briefly, I think, in the agent business. 
Um, he used to he used to show up at Appleton Arena in Canton, New York, where my son Mike was playing for the St. Lawrence Saints. He had uh, he had some uh, family friends on the the Saints at the same time my son played there. Got to spend some time talking hockey with Kevin back then. And uh, obviously, since he's gone to work uh, for the Pagoulas. And and I think Kevin's a really bright guy. And I think he's got a lot of, uh, I think he's a savvy hockey guy. And he maybe doesn't have as much experience as a lot of people who get the job as a general manager in the National Hockey League. Um, And so what I would say is I like a lot of the things that the Sabres have done. I don't know. You know, you got to wait till the games are played on the ice to see how they all pan out. And evaluating general managers, in, in this case, we're talking, you know, weeks and months with no games to to sure. to, to judge somebody on. You know, I think ultimately general managers generally you need years to evaluate them, and uh, and and what have you. But what I would say is this: the feeling at the time. When, when the Bagulas made the move and, and Jason Botterill was let go and Kevin was brought in, there was, there was a feeling in the hockey community that it was going to be a slash and burn situation with the, with the Sabres. And, and obviously they offloaded a ton of scouts and hockey personnel um, and they're doing things differently and it remains to be seen whether differently is going to be better or not. We don't know that yet. But what we obviously saw with going after Taylor Hall and and making some of the moves that they made, the Eric Stahl trade, kind of flew in the face of what a lot of people kind of expected for for the Sabres. So, in other words, if this was going to be a slash it, burn it to the ground, you know, rebuild, or or there was all these stories of. You know they're not going to. The Pagulas aren't going to spend the money like they used to. Um, th- th- it was kind of a funny way to show up by right. going out and getting Eric Stahl <laughs> and all, yeah. uh, and 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 Taylor Hall. Albeit, I mean, it's a short-term deal and and what have you. So, you know, on, on all of those things, I would say that the the story has yet to be written on any of it. But it's it's not immediately what some of us uh, not necessarily me but a lot of what a lot of people thought it was going to be and and so on that front i think there's probably some level of optimism for the saber fans although it's been such a long time and they've been spinning their wheels for so long that optimism is very much in short supply yeah and like you said like it's yet to be determined if it's better the the new like you know scouting methods and exactly. an inexperienced GM, but it's also not a very high bar to make sure it's not worse, right? I mean, like they can't do much worse than they've done the last ten years. No, but and and the other thing is there's no there's no patience, and understandably so. I'm not saying there should be patience because you know the Buffalo Saber fans are as good of fans as you're going to get in the National Hockey League. You know when you talk about NBC. Yeah, we, we kill uh, the ratings. Kill them. Every, yeah. every, exactly. Yeah. The, the Buffalo market is the best hockey market in, in the United States when it comes to, to when it comes to the TV ratings. And, and so, you know, bu- the Buffalo fans are going through what Edmonton fans were going through and have been going through for, for quite some time. And that is, you know, a decade of, of nothing to be excited about. And yeah. when you get into that double digit years of, 
no real highlights. Um, it's, 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 it's tough not to be cynical. It's tough to, to maintain some semblance of optimism or that things are going to get better. So, as I say, the proof will be in the pudding. We'll see what happens with the Pagoulas, with Kevin, and uh, the Sabres on the ice when, when they get there. Um, but uh, in, the, in the very short term, though, you know, the Eric Stahl thing and the Taylor Hall thing, I mean, you've got to admit, for, I think most people would admit that those moves kind of caught people off guard and took them a little bit by surprise. All right, in a I, nice way. <laughs> I, I got to get you out, but can you give me 20 seconds on Quinn versus Rossi? Yeah, you know what? Um, Rossi's a more mature guy. They're, they're the same age, which is kind of weird, but w- one of them's been playing in the in the OHL for three years. One of them's been playing only for two years, and and really the first year was more of a, a, a depth player, right, a younger almost. player that was still trying to still trying to find his way. Um, you know, I, I, Jack Quinn might be the the best pure goal scorer in this entire draft, um, and uh, you know, a guy that's going to score a lot of goals in the National Hockey League. Rossi is uh, more physically mature, probably more ready to play right now. Um, but uh, I don't I, I don't think uh, there's a lot to separate the two, and and I'm not convinced that. Uh, the Sabres necessarily made a mistake and uh, there's just some personal preference there for, on the two players. I think that both of them project out to be really good NHL players. Well, Bob, I know you're in semi-retirement, so if you need any help on OHL stuff, just the Sabres fan base is suddenly filled, especially Ottawa. If you need to know anything about the Ottawa team, these guys know why they scored goals, who was the reason, all that. So just come to the Sabres fan base for that. All right, I got to get you out. Bob McKenzie and Jim Lang, Everyday Hockey Heroes is the book. Uh, pick it up. You can follow Bob, of course, on Twitter. You probably don't need this because he's got like 2 million people there, but it's at TS on Bob McKenzie if you don't know yet. Thank you so much for every minute of this. I appreciate you. Thanks very much, Steve. Really appreciate it. Could have used a few pounds Tight pants, points, hollering out She was a black-haired beauty with big dark eyes And points all her own, sudden way up high I want to thank Bob McKenzie for being on the Sportscasters. You know, sometimes when you do an interview... No matter how good or bad it turns out, the first thing you do is kick yourself for what you didn't ask. And I meant to ask Bob about the World Juniors, which are coming up uh, after Christmas. And I totally just missed it. So that's a bad job by me. Anyway, book club update. So Bob McKenzie's book, Hockey Heroes, was going to be on the book club. And then I didn't trust them. And then they came through. We'll call it a kind of unofficial book club book of the month. But uh, thanks to Bob and everyone with his book company for helping me, allowing me to help him promote it. Uh, That leaves one book, one book still standing for 2020, and it's a good one. Peyton and Breeze, The Men Who Built the Greatest Offense in NFL History by Jeff Duncan. And my plan is, if I can work it out with Jeff, to have him on the next episode. And we'll close off the book club for 2020 
And uh, next episode in this spot, I will give recommendations for books if you're looking to buy some stocking stuffers or Christmas presents in that area. So, all right, that's it, really. I don't have anything else for the book club. Like I said, we're winding down here in 2021 or 2020. I have a few ideas already for books I want to cover at the beginning of 2021. And I'll let you know what those are when I can confirm them. So this is what we're going to do. We'll take a break and we'll come back with one of the nicest dudes out there. No joke. Damon Hack. Next guest is a sportscaster's original and one of the nicest guys in sports media. He's the father of triplets, one of the all-time great writers of sports gamers, and someone I'm proud to call a friend of Warren Sportscasters. Welcome to Damon Hack. What's up, Damon? How are you, buddy? I'm doing fantastic, Steve. How you been? You know, I'm doing really good. Um, it's a tough year, obviously, but I've been making the best of it. I've been happy. You know, getting ready for 10 years of the sportscasters next year. How do you think we should celebrate? <laughs> I, I think however you celebrate, you got to go big. Yeah. Uh, it's been fun. I've, I think I've been with you for a lot of the, From the, beginning, the 10 man. years. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing that I, mean, uh, I knew you before you had uh, a daughter. Yeah. Way before. <laughs> yeah. Way before. That's crazy. I think I knew you before. You, I did. I knew you before you had the, the triplets, too. Yeah, my boys are nine now, and you want to talk about sports uh, fanatics? Uh, pretty soon you'll be dumping me and, and calling them for insight. <laughs> well, I know they're, they're quite the golfers, and they play. I, I mean, every picture you post to them, there seems like they're playing something: tennis, golf, basketball, soccer, flag football, and, and they're uh, rock climbers. They like ninja stuff. They um, I've asked about lacrosse as we move to the Northeast, so I think if anything has to do with competition, they want a part of it. <laughs> and, they, I mean, I'm sure they have a competition every 15 minutes around the house, too. Probably doesn't need to be a sporting event for them to be competing. <laughs> I mean, they wear themselves out. They're each other's best friends and worst enemies, uh, and sometimes <laughs> seconds apart. <laughs> That's amazing. It's amazing for you, too, to have, like, I mean, when it you guys have a foursome, right? You don't even need yeah. it. You guys have a, the four. You use the foursome if you want. You want it anytime. We can give the give the wife the afternoon off. Yeah. and play some golf. It's it's really really fun. And and, and I play two on two football with them sometimes. Um, uh, if one doesn't want to play, I'll be all time quarterback. But usually we're we're two on two. We just rotate. Uh, I'm I'm teammates with with all three. We we play you know just game after game after game. And I'm I'm usually worn out much earlier than they are but they're either going to send me to an early grave or keep me young i, I can't i can't decide which one <laughs> we'll find out <laughs> so this is what i'm interested in who are their teams and players they like who are some teams and players that are super into great question so i, I got one laker fan one has just kind of followed me and i'm a raider fan dodger laker fan you know put up in southern california so right. james uh, the oldest has followed 
all of my sports teams, UCLA. It's just it's really cool. He made me a little LeBron James, uh, you know, jersey. Uh, he's just uh, he's father dad. But then I've got, uh, gosh, my son Miles has been an Eagles fan. My son Reese is a Packers fan. They all appreciate the gifts of of uh, Patrick Mahomes and Lamar Jackson. Mm-hmm. We each have a fantasy team, so we're doing fantasy football together. Uh, they love the NFL probably tops just in terms of talking about it, collecting football cards, watching NFL Network, games on Sunday. They just they can't get enough. It's like I'm, re- I'm literally reliving my youth, and it's just, uh, it's just such a fun – it's just a blast. All right, so you talked about the Southern California teams, and last – I don't know if it was last time you were on, or probably two times ago you were on at least. We talked about the Dodgers losing the World Series, and this time they, they cashed it, right? And actually, it's been a great year for you in that sense. We got two championships, so let's do one at a time. Let's start with the Dodgers. Let me ask you this. What was your thought when the Tampa Bay manager comes out of the dugout to take their pitcher out of the game? <laughs> I, I, to be honest with you, it, I, I was I was shocked. I, I was shocked and surprised. But my ultimate thought was, wow, maybe this is not going to be like the mistake that everyone says, oh, well, Dave Roberts, you know, pulled Clayton too early or left him on the mound too long. I was like, wow, maybe this is the time where it's going to be the other guy who makes the big mistake. That's the talking point of the offseason. Sure was. Uh, as a UCLA Bruin, I'm so happy for, for Dave Roberts. I actually, believe it or not, I worked for KLA Radio, which was the college station, when Dave Roberts was an outfielder. I watched Dave Roberts play college baseball at Jackie Robinson Stadium about five minutes from the campus of UCLA. So to see him go from a college baseball player to a hero with the, the Red Sox and, yeah. and their win in 04. The stolen base. To, uh, yeah, with a big stolen base yeah. and now a, a winning World Series manager. So happy for him. So happy for Kershaw. And, and you mentioned you know, the Lakers and Dodgers. I was 16 years old the last time the Lakers and Dodgers won the same year, 1988. Yeah. And it brought me back to my time with my dad and, and watching Gibson you know, take Eckersley deep. And, of course, the Lakers you know, went back-to-back. They beat the Celtics in 87 and then the Pistons in 88. So... It's like I've got kids now, and they're seeing me jump around like I jumped around, you know, all these years ago. That's amazing. You know, I I was telling my brother when I when I was growing up in Buffalo, the, really the only team that was on every day was the Braves because of TBS. You know, it's kind of pre regional sports network, so we weren't getting yes yet or so. I, I kind of liked the Braves; so I could watch them every day. And um, I was telling my brother, I'm like, you know, why wasn't this guy managing the Twins in 1991? Maybe he could have came and take uh, take Jack Morris <laughs> out of the game in the sixth inning. <laughs> um, you know, but uh, yeah, an amazing moment. And then, you know, the other thing about the Dodgers is like they rebounded from that crazy play and didn't lose again. You know what I mean? It was like. You thought maybe that was the turning point for the Rays, the walk-off play that Joe Buck absolutely nailed like in real time to get every – I thought that was a great call, but besides the point, you know, where the Dodgers just make this unbelievable mistake, a team that was on a run like the last three games of the NLCS, they were taking advantage of the Braves' mistakes, and it felt like they had like 
10 fielders out there, 11 people. Like they were just, the defense was so good. And for that breakdown in that moment and you lose a game and you're like, uh-oh, I wonder if this is, but instead they kind of rallied there and didn't lose again. I don't know what you thought about that, yeah. that moment and kind of it being a turning point for them for whatever reason. I tell you what, and, and it's weird to say this, but I, I think when I watched the Dodgers, there were so many opportunities for them, for the fans to say, uh-oh, here we go again. Sure. And I've been kind of waiting to think that this team, I, I've been in awe of the San Francisco Giants, of course, the bitter rival of the Dodgers, but over the last decade, the toughness that they've shown with their pitching staff and with their clutch hitting. And I thought, Finally, the Dodgers kind of showed that kind of grit and toughness and never say die. I mean, the timely hitting of Betts and Bellinger and Justin Turner. and, and I'm just so happy for Kershaw. And there was a great Same. video that I watched of him celebrating every player, just giving him a massive bear hug and his hair smile all over the place. And just, you know, how much he, he took as the ace of the staff who couldn't quite get over the hump and had actually had some great moments in the postseason, but they were overshadowed by tough losses or untimely home runs. And, and just for him to be able to finally exhale and, and celebrate a, uh, a title, it's just a lot of goosebump moments uh, watching the Dodgers take care of the Rays. You know, I think that Kershaw suffers from the fact that he's pitched so many postseason games. This kind of happened with Maddox a little bit too, where... He would pitch like game one of the 95 World Series. It was him versus Hershiser, and he, you know, he was unbelievable. But it seems like people focus more on like, I don't know, a bad game. Like I think game six against the Yankees in 96 maybe. Whatever. There was those four or five or, you know, so. But it's like when you pitch so many damn World Series games, so many ALCSs, you can't go seven innings, one hit every time. I, don't, I mean, I don't care who you are really. Like even Rivera had a few games where he didn't get to save, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's a great point. I mean, you could bring up, you know, for Rivera, you want to bring up the Arizona Diamondbacks. Right, the Indians, Alamore. Indians, exactly. Yep. I just know this. I know that Clayton Kershaw had a 2.31 ERA in this World Series, and he was absolutely lights out. He had a 2.45 uh, ERA in the NLCS against the Cubs back in 17. They had 2.63 ERA in the NLDS against the Mets back in 2015. It hasn't been all bad. Uh, he's had some some big time wins and big time moments. He's pitched. In, I want to say he's like 13 and 12 in the postseason. But he's had, like you say, he's been in so many games. He's been the ultimate horse. He's been ridden and he's been the the bell cow for this team. And, and asked to, to go, you know, short. Yeah, three out days of the rest. Every different scenario and situation with. When the ta- the tables tell you that's hard for any pitcher to do to pitch on short game, short rest, no matter who they are, and uh, he he earned it, man. He he earned it this year, and I and I hope that he's able to enjoy a couple years of of just kind of freedom from criticism. Yeah, and last thing on the Dodgers, I also was glad that they did get to win one while we still had, you know, Vin here and Lasorda yeah. and even Alex Trebek. You know, who's a yeah. huge presence at Dodgers games over the year and a big fan from what I hear, you know, got to see it. So I think some of their famous fans, it came at the right time, too. Oh, no doubt. Vince Scully has become a must follow on, on Twitter yeah. for his baseball 
knowledge and nuggets that he drops on a daily basis. Uh, I grew up listening to Vin. I would go to Dodger games with my dad, and people would have their radios out so you could actually watch the game from the stands. So people had the little small radio, and you could hear the broadcast even if you were sitting in the stands. So a lot of magical summers. I remember watching Dave Parker hit a home run for the uh, Reds at, at the time. My dad and I were talking about it for years, how quickly that ball left Dodger Stadium. But Vinny, uh, you know, is the soundtrack of many springs and summers for, for a lot of folks from Southern California. I think I might have told you this last time, but the last four or five years of his career, I would listen to the broadcasts as I would fall asleep. Because, you know, on the East Coast, their games would be late. And I would just put my headphones in in bed and like put the MLB app on and just kind of go to sleep to listen. Cause he's just telling stories, you know, calling the game. Yeah, but he's just talking. And I guess he's going to do the uh, DVD or whatever, the documentary oh, wow. about the, you know, the 2020 Dodgers season wow. film. So he's going to narrate that. So, so that, that'll be sweet. Yeah. All right. Let's That's do, so appropriate. Yeah. Let's do the Lakers real quick. So it's different because. It's out of, it's in the wrong spot in the calendar, right? I mean, the NBA title is usually given out in June. You know, this time it's October. It's in this kind of crowded area of the calendar. I mean, there was some NBA Finals game, 50% less viewers, and there's a lot of factors, and we don't need to get into them. But I'm curious, did it affect you as a Lakers fan with it being kind of out of place and all these different things? Or for you, was it just like, hey, we had this team, and thank God we got to finish it, and wow, we finished it with the title. Amazing. Like, What was your kind of feel on it being kind of misplaced and all the kind of weird stuff that went with the 2019-2020 NBA season? Yeah, it's funny because you know I lived in Orlando during this season, this bubble, and to right. be so close but so far away, I, I actually felt a little bit of a kinship, you know, watching the playoffs. I thought they were so exciting that the teams, you know, the Jazz and the Mavericks and the Heat and the Blazers and the Nuggets and the Lakers and the Clippers. I mean, I just thought if you love the NBA, every night was just a showcase of stars. Sure. And so for me, who, who grew up watching Magic and Isaiah and Bird and Kareem, I think the league is a, a, a league of stars again. And to have kids who are interested in the NBA, into, uh, you know, they love, the, especially James, loves the Lakers. But I've also got a Jimmy Butler fan. So we need to have the Lakers in the heat. And I didn't mind the kind of herky-jerkiness of the schedule with some of the day games that they had and kind of tough to get used to it. We, we found the time, especially in COVID, to just kind of, huddle together as a family and watch these exciting games that often came down to the wire. That game, I'm going to say four, the Lakers won by six, game five, the Heat bounced back to close it to 3-2. I mean, there was just so many great battles in that series, but also in the playoffs as a whole. So I know the ratings might not have been what they wanted. Um, I think it had to do with more with the strangeness of the schedule and the amount of day games that they had, especially early on in the bubble. But man, I thought the action on the court was important. I thought the message of the players, you know, taking the leadership and not afraid to talk about some uncomfortable things like racial justice. And I actually embraced it and, and tried to explain this moment to my kids and, and found that the, the action on the basketball court was very, very compelling. What if you had to give one back 
Would you give back the Dodgers or the Lakers? <laughs> What's so good? What a great question. Oh, man. You know what? I, I feel like the Lakers have given me so many titles. Sure. I, I mean, to have five in the 80s with Magic and Kareem, to have the incredible duo of Shaq and Kobe and later Kobe and Powell, I, I, I'd want to probably I'd probably give back the Lakers one. The Dodgers first in 88. Yeah. Um, so happy for, for that team. You know, the new – uh, Mookie Betts edition. I've talked to, to Red Sox fans who are just crestfallen that they don't have him on the team anymore. I <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, so I, I'm I'm keeping the Dodgers one. If I got to get one back, I'm going to say LeBron and AD. Got to try to try to do it in 2020, 2021, and I'll keep the I'll keep the Dodgers title. Yeah, I think that's the right answer, especially since the Dodgers have been knocking at the door for almost a decade here. You know, to finally bust through. Yeah. Have you had a chance to look at Perlman's new book? The um... Is it called Three Ring Circus? Oh, you know, I saw I saw him tweet about it. You got to put that on buddy. your Christmas list. Oh, yeah, I, I've got to do it. Like, yeah. Now's the time to do it. I mean, things are slowing down. Uh-huh. You know, with the holidays coming up, uh, I'm reading this book called Educated uh, by Tara Westover. It's about a a wilderness um, kind of naturalist anti government family, and she grew up in. But I need to add some sports books. I got I've got Perlman's Football for a Buck. That's good um, too. It's about yeah. the USFL, I yeah. want to read that, but I do want to read Three Ring Circus. I heard as a Laker fan or even an NBA fan, it's just a must read. Yeah, well, he he did Showtime about maybe five years yeah. ago about that era, and now this is the you know it's really I told him it's really the Shaq and Kobe book. You know, we're, mm. we're football for a buck, and his books in general are often unique because they they're about that eighth player on the bench, or you know, like he gets really in. But this is the Shaq and Kobe book. You know, no matter what the topic is, you get drifted back to Shaq and Kobe so somehow. Um, mm. So I think I think I think you'll enjoy it. I enjoyed it. I'm not a huge basketball guy, um, but I do love basketball books, which is odd. I loved uh, Jack McCollum's book about the Dream Team. It's like one of my oh, favorite yeah. books we ever did on the show. And another basketball book I love is Gene Wojciechowski did one about the Duke. And Kentucky game with the Leitner shot—that's great too. Oh, I think, unbelievable! I, I, my book, my book list is, is getting longer and longer by the second. Oh, I, I, I would know. suggest. Uh, did you read Sweetness? Did you read his book? That's my Walter favorite. Payton? That's my favorite Perlman book. Yeah, Sweetness is mine as well. Yeah. I, I thought the reporting and the writing was so good, and uh, I know he took some heat from the family because yeah. you know you write about the heroes, and you, you kind of learn that it's not always what. You know, we would want them to be, but I thought it was a very well-rounded, well-reported book by, by Jeff, among uh, many well-reported, well-written books by Jeff. You know, it's interesting, too, about that sweetness and, you know, taking a little bit of bull black. I know uh, Wilbon was someone who, you know, got on him, which was too bad because you could tell Wilbon didn't actually read it. But um, the this book, Three Ring Circus, you know, I said it was kind of the Shaq and Kobe book, and to use a wrestling term, in the book, you get the feeling that Shaq is the baby face and Kobe is kind of the heel. You know, so I asked him if he was worried at all, you know, in the light of, you know, the tragic death of Kobe, of getting that kind of similar blowback because, you know, there's some difficult, you know, truths about Kobe that are touched in the, and in the book, but doesn't seem like it's happened yet, at least not to the same scale. That certainly had happened with sweetness because I remember that was everywhere. You know the blowback on that. It sure was, and, and I tell you, 
I feel like in, in light of Kobe's death, and I know that they, at least from what I saw inside the NBA, you know, Shaq and he had seemed to have come to a bit of, uh, you know, an understanding, you know, post-career. And I know that Shaq and the, and the kids and stuff had had some really nice moments. And, you know, in the heat of battle, in the heat of competition, whether you're Joe Montana and Steve Young trying to compete for the starting quarterback position of the Niners or you're Shaq and Kobe and you're trying to be the biggest star in L.A., uh, you know, these, these things happen. I don't think there's a team in existence, whether they won a championship or go 0-16, that, that don't deal with some some you know inner turmoil strife whether it's player to player coach to player and, and it's uh, it's human nature in a lot of ways and, and I just uh, I tell you that the Kobe tragedy is, is one of the, the things that really shook me as a dad as uh, a yeah. fan obviously and, and just uh, he just seemed to be really falling so nicely into the second part of his career really finding you know through you know, motion pictures and documentaries and coaching and leading young girls and giving them an opportunity to play basketball. It's just uh, a true, true tragedy that, uh, that happened earlier this year. Absolutely. Rest in peace, Kobe. Uh, you mentioned uh, Montana and uh, young. I just have to, I'll mention it real quick. There's another book called best of rivals by a guy named Adam Lazarus about that topic. If anyone wants to check that mm. out, that was really good as well. Um, all right, let's, uh, Damon Hack is with us here on the Sportscasters, one of the, you know, Mount Rushmore type Sportscasters guests. Been with me since the beginning. Let's talk about the Masters and golf for a second, because like the NBA, it's had to deal with its events, you know, on a different part of the calendar and out of place. And, you know, instead of having a... Sunday afternoon from 4 to 7 in April, maybe on Easter or around there, uh, end of the Masters. Instead, they've, they had a Sunday morning pretty much trying to finish up in time for the 4 o'clock window of football games. And it definitely hurt them in terms of the ratings. But, you know, golf ratings are interesting because depending on who's in contention in a major, they fluctuate 10 15% a year anyway. Uh, but... How do you think golf has done in general with dealing with the pandemic? You know, they got the four majors in. Um, so, you know, to me, that that's kind of what makes you feel like they got the season in. Uh, how do you think golf did? And, and, and how did you feel about the Masters in November and how that ended up working out? I tell you what, it was challenging. And it's been challenging for golf to see in terms of a rating standpoint. I think the, the Masters was its lowest rating you know, in like 50 something years, yep. something crazy like that, or the November Masters and a five shot win for, for Dustin Johnson, who's the number one player. So you thought that would at least be compelling. But in terms of coming back in this era of COVID, I thought they've done a wonderful job of being able to put on events, keep the players mostly safe for the most part. You're going to have some folks that end up getting COVID. We've seen it across all sports, but in terms of being one of the first sports to come back, in this era of COVID-19 and being able to put together a product that we can watch and enjoy as someone who covers the game and works for golf channel. I think they've done a fine, fine job. Now I think all the teams and all the leagues are facing certain challenges, but I thought in general that golf, after having a bit of a rocky departure in March, when they 
played the Players' Championship the first round, even as the NBA was shutting down with Rudy Gobert and others testing positive. And then they finally decided not to play that second round and to cancel the tournament. But since then, I feel like they've come back very strong, very, very um, unified as well with the players doing what they can to follow the protocols that the PGA Tour has put in place. Let's talk about let's talk about the winner for a second because it was a domination. You know what I mean? Like it was, geez, when you get to the negative twenties and a and a Masters, that, that's an ass kicking. I mean, that's like prime Tiger Woods stuff right there. Um, what did you think about the weekend and the performance? And where does it kind of rank for you in the was- last bunch of Masters? You know. It was incredible to see Dustin Johnson, who had been considered this massive underachiever throughout his career, win a second major championship and to do so really in dominant fashion, 20 under a new Masters record, for example. Uh, He was absolutely phenomenal off the tee, phenomenal on the greens, and had really put himself out there, I thought. If you remember January, he said that he should have won twice as many tournaments as he had, including majors. He's won four times now in 2020. He won a Cup title. He's won a Masters now. And at the age of 36, it looks like he's just in the sweet spot of his career. Uh, for someone who was called out by Brooks Kepka for only having one major, for someone who's been called the uncaring, a robot, he just kind of shades around the golf course, the emotion that he showed after getting that green jacket. Uh, he grew up an hour from Augusta in Columbia, South Carolina. So anyone who knows, if you grow up playing golf in the South especially, a green jacket is everything. Yeah. He grew up dreaming about making putts to win the Masters and meet uh, a neat storyline to see a dominant world number one play like a dominant world number one. I mentioned uh, heels earlier. Explain to me why... Bryson is such a heel. <laughs> what what is it about that guy? Like he just, you know, he just uh, he goes about things differently, and he thinks he's the smartest guy in every room he walks into. He's got a little Phil Mickelson in him, and, and Phil, I think, is a little more savvy, a little more polished, uh, a little more fun loving. I think Bryson is a little bit more, um, you know, kind of uncomfortable bedside manner. I think she kind of knows more than you. And is trying to figure out how to navigate this social media era and, and being so different and being the scientist and being kind of the anti-hero. I, I don't think he said he doesn't want to be loved. I, I think it's, he's trying to figure out how to be. A bit of a loner, um, even with... You know, you know, kind of a relationship with Tiger, who lives share the same golf ball company, and and I think Tiger's intrigued. You know, at the end of the day, Tiger's a big golf nerd, and, and so is Bryson. So they like to talk about, you know, the weight of clubs and, and what the dew does to the face of an iron. So I think there's some intrigue among his peers, but I think it's the way he kind of came on the PJ Tour as someone different, you know, promoting single length irons, who also was really, really methodical, a bit of a slow player early in his career. It's something he's worked on, uh, in addition to getting bigger and stronger and faster and hitting the ball as far as he does. 
But you can't take away a six-shot victory at the U.S. Open at Wingfoot from him. So for all this quirks and quirkiness and, and kind of rubbing people the wrong way from time to time with his behavior, and not always kind to the volunteers or the PZ Tour officials, uh, he is a major champion and a top-ten player. I asked my friend, a couple more and I'll let you go. I asked my friend Christian, who's a big golf guy, if there's anything kind of below the surface that I might miss that I should ask you. And he wanted to get your take on the hoodie controversy. Um, guys wearing hoodies on the golf course, you know, I think probably it's a thing this year because golf is a little later maybe in certain areas where they might have, you know, I mean, obviously the Masters is a good example. Normally you're playing that thing in April, it's November, different weather, whatever. But it's brought up this issue of, you know, some of the stuffy rules sometimes in golf and hoodies. Where, you, you into that controversy at all? You have any thoughts on that? That's interesting. Golf is kind of almost always it's, you know, past history of being a little bit stiff, a little bit old, a little bit um, stale, let, let's be honest. And, and I think it's thankful for, for folks like Tiger Woods, who, who's so young, uh, you know, or, or so young in the 1990s to bring a different generation sure. of, you know, multicultural minorities women, young people, inner city folks to the game. And, and I think that in some ways uh, he's been the best and worst thing that happened to golf because I think he's the best thing that happened to golf and that he's increased the numbers. The worst thing that happened to golf is that golf in some ways got a little lazy thinking it was multicultural because the best player in the world was multicultural. But I still think it's been kind of slow to change, to adapt, to grow, to take chances, take risks. And, and for Tyrrell Hatton or whoever to want to wear a hoodie inside the ropes and, and, and people freak out about it. You know, it's just fashion, something different. It, it, it might be something that a young person thinks is cool and, and, and dynamic and different. So I think golf always has this push pull of wanting to honor its traditions, but it, you can kind of do that to your detriment sometimes if you're not expanding the tent. Yeah. To me, it's like, wow, people are upset about a hoodie. Like, come on. Find something else. Uh, Rory had a bad first day, and if not, he might have been able to challenge um, Dustin a little bit on the last day. He needs one more for the career slam. And he's like a lot of these guys in the post. The, the, I don't want to say the post-Tiger era because we're still Tiger's still playing, but since his dominance has lessened a little bit, it feels like anytime a young kid wins one or two, there's this rush to like, is this the new tiger? You know, and we've seen it with a few other guys and it seems like maybe they've buckled under the pressure of it a little bit. I don't know. Maybe Rory's a little different, but where do you think he stands after say like in the beginning of his career, he was like this mega superstar, the next tiger, you know, and I think that that's calmed down a little bit, but, you know, he's still a guy capable of, you know, winning any tournament for sure. Um, where, where do you think he stands right now in his career? And what do you think is ahead for him? You know, he's got 18 wins on the PGA Tour, four majors, two FedEx Cup, but no majors since 2014. And he's gotten to a point where he's put a lot of pressure on himself in the majors, and especially at the beginning of majors to get off on a on the right foot. He saw 79 in the opening round at Portrush last year in the Open, 
in his native Northern Ireland and admitted he didn't really know how to embrace the excitement of the fans, so he tried to treat it as any other event, any other major, when it was, you know, I would have loved to see him make it his own personal Ryder Cup. Like, oh my God, I'm playing Miles from where I grew up, and he made a furious charge on Friday to miss the cut. Fast forward to this year, his sixth attempt to complete the career grand slam, and it's an opening round 75 on a day when the golf course was so soft, and Paul Casey shot 65, and Tiger yeah. shot 68, bogey-free, and, and, and Rory just running in place and putting pressure on himself, and then he freewheels it rounds two, three, and four. So to me, it's about Rory putting pressure on himself, especially at the outset. It's amazing to think that someone who made, you know, made winning majors look easy won his first major by eight, his second major by eight in 2011 and 2012, respectively, and knocked off two more in 2014. So to me, Rory, who says he's at peace, who became a new father himself recently of a baby girl named Poppy, uh, is trying to find that balance on the golf course where he can feel completely free and comfortable uh, and still be the nice guy that he is, but also be the guy that wants to eat nails and, and, and spit fire. Uh, because to beat the likes of Tiger and Kepka and DJ and Bison and Morikawa and Webb Simpson is a top 10 player, uh, everything has to be working. And I think Rory has been so sweet and conscientious and uh, a good interview and a good listener that he's sensitive. And I think he's just had trouble with all the pressure of trying to win a fifth major and, of course, win that elusive career grand slam. All right, last thing. Let's end on Tiger. So I ask you this every time you're on. Will Tiger pass Nicholas in majors? Where do you stand today on that? I'm going to say he's not. I think that's the I, first I, time. I, I think that's the first time you yeah. said no. Uh, I, I I just don't know if his body can handle the questions that the game is asking now. And it's weird to say that. considering he won a 15th major uh, 19 months ago. But looking at how he moved around Augusta in November... Knowing what I know about, you know, what his body has gone through, to me, the 15th major is looking more like Jack's 18th. Right. Cherry on top. The big exhale. What a moment for golf that we should appreciate and embrace. I mean, Tiger just announced he's going to be playing in the PNC Championship, the former uh, father-son with his son, Charlie, in December. I almost feel like he's embracing this ambassador role even more and more. He approached the U.S. Amateur Champ, Andy Oldenstreet, before the opening round on Thursday and said, hey, let's go get it. Let's go have some fun. He got emotional on the way to the champion's dinner on Tuesday night and had to wipe away tears. I mean, this is the same guy who used to snap necks. He didn't tell you about it. And I think he's just become more of an ambassador. He's embracing his role as an elder statesman. I don't think his body, his mind can put together three more major championships um, in his mid-40s, about to turn 45. I just don't think he can do it. Um, and I think no less of him if he's not able to do it because he's given us so much already. Right. I think, and maybe you agree or disagree with this, but I think he has a chance right now every year at Augusta still. You know, he has a chance, like he showed us, you know, the last, just, what, two years ago. Or not even, like you said, 19 months. Um, he can have a perfect weekend there maybe one more time. Like 
86. Like, because, yeah. you know, that could happen again. Um, but I think that that's probably it. If You know what I mean? Like, maybe that happens one more time. But if not, I don't. I don't, I don't see him winning a British Open, do you? Like or the U.S. Open? I, I don't know. I think St. Andrews and Augusta, and of course St. Andrews. Okay, St. Andrews. Five years, um, and of course Augusta. You know, we saw he's off still pretty well in contend and winning his forties. Uh, you know, Jack, of course, at the age of forty-six, Langer continues to play well. Couples plays well. There are a handful of players from Augusta National. They're almost always got a country's chance. And I think that's a very good point you bring up. And I think Augusta is that place, the number one place where Tiger can find it. Uh, and I was starting to believe actually at 68, if I was in the perfect position, is equaling his best ever start, his first ever bogey-free opening round at Augusta. It looked like things were lining up for him. And, and then the big day of the rain delay, and he had to play. Some 27, 28 holes. It looked like he's moving a little bit slower. So I think the health isn't on his side, but man, the knowledge, the dial, the wisdom, the talent, the skill, he's on his side. Um, and it'll be kind of that push pull between those two. Uh, and, and I think he'll be compelling for the next four or five years. You know, good health. Lord uh, willing, the creek don't rise. All right, very last thing. So there was the book that Armin contained and. Uh... Jeff Benedict wrote, and now there's the documentary. I seen. I don't know if you've seen the trailer or not. Um, it seems to be everywhere. I look all of a sudden. This trailer is everywhere for a two part documentary on HBO, which I guess is based on the person who wrote his father's uh, biography. I guess. Um, so I don't know. What the t- I didn't read that, so I don't know what the tone of that was, and but it seems like the tone from the trailer is that it's going to be closer to an examination of Tiger that, like, I don't want to say a negative spin, but maybe, um, maybe there's a more of a focus on the lows. I don't know, I don't know if that's true, I haven't seen it yet, but from the trailer. It felt like we're getting a very like a rise and fall type story, a rise again. I don't know how where it's gonna go. Did you see the trailer? Any thoughts on the documentary coming up? Did you, did you know anything about the book that I guess this is based on? Uh, someone who wrote a book about his dad. I don't know. Do you know anything about that? You know, I just I just saw that it was it was coming. It's about his rise and fall, um, and rise again. Okay. I don't know. I haven't seen the trailer. It's a and, good and trailer. Right. Uh, it, yeah, I, I have to look it up, and, and you're making me want to go see it. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna, see, I will see it as soon as we're done because I, I need to know about it. But yeah, all I know is that it's, it's supposed to become very thorough. It, it, it tackles the scandal. It tackles the relationship with his father in, in ways maybe we haven't seen for a while. Maybe things we forgot. But um, anything about Tiger, I will watch. I'll be interested in and. Uh, and maybe he's even at a better place now to reflect on on his on his fall because you know as dramatic as that was, I, I think we can say his rise with that 15th major was equally as dramatic and, and, and in some ways as unexpected as well. I think after we both watch this, we got to finally just do the podcast where we kind of only talk about Tiger. You know what I, I mean? Agree. I think we could. I think we could fill it. I yeah, have no, I have no doubt we could fill 
a complete podcast on Eldrick Tiger Woods. Yeah, I think after we watch this, have you? Did you ever end up reading the book, uh, Armin and? Uh, I know I'm, I did. Uh, yeah. I read Armin and Jeff's book yeah. on Tiger. I thought it was really well done. They're both such thorough reporters, and I I thought it was a very fair and honest assessment. Obviously, they interview people in Tiger's past that Tiger doesn't you know talk with anymore. But I, I you know as a journalist who who appreciates the well rounded profile. Uh, this book uh, had all of that and more. You know what's interesting for me about that book is I've often been an anyone but Tiger guy in, in some in some instances, you know. And I thought reading that I would get more annoyed with Tiger. But the truth is, is it kind of has made me appreciate the man that Tiger has become even more. You know, and I've I've gained a little bit of an appreciation for him because like look at we're not all like we're we're all humans and we're all flawed and like I've kind of been able to kind of find more empathy for him in the sense that like you know this wasn't fair to put this guy through this in some ways at 18 19 you know like it was tough and he made his fair share of mistakes and I'm not letting him off the hook but I think it's that rise again part where as what as I became more clear about the fall, I've been more impressed with the rise again, I guess is what I'm trying to say. I don't know if well, I expected I that. We, oh, I think it, 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 it kind of gives us, you know, a, a different perspective on what he had to go through physically, emotionally, to be you know, laid bare, embarrassed. And these, these are mistakes he made, uh, you know, and I'm not, feeling sorry for, for the choices he made, but um, right. I can, I can, I can still appreciate that someone who was at the bottom climbed out of the bottom, you know, you know, from scandal, embarrassment, not to mention back surgeries and short game woes uh, at best and yips at worst to become, you know, a major champion again, a winner again, a tour champion again, won the Zozo 82 time winner on the PGA tour again. So I think Tiger, as a journalist and golf broadcaster, he's given me way more than I could have ever hoped for in terms of storylines, compelling theater, inside and outside the ropes. So he is um, a gift to golf who is irreplaceable. All due respect to Justin Thomas, Dustin Johnson, Kepka Rory, and all these young studs that right, are Spieth. so-called Tiger babies. <laughs> right, 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 right. Spieth as well, yeah. Yeah. All right, listen, the great Damon Hack – one of my all-time favorite sportscasters, guys. He's on Twitter at Damon Hack GC, and of course, you can see him on the Golf Channel. And I always tell you, Damon, I miss—I do miss the Damon Hack Gamer. I kind of miss—I <laughs> miss the gamer in general because it's kind of a dead art form, it seems like. But oh, I always the day. I always tell you about one of the first times you were on. You covered a Broncos and Jets game. I think it was a Monday night football game um, for SI and wrote this incredible kind of, I should try to find that, that article or that, even that podcast that we did. But um, man, I do wish that like you were going to be at, you know, the Saints and Falcons game this week covering that. And, you know, I could be texting you and saying like, you know, (laughs) How, how do you think Jameis is doing so far? Like, you know, are we <laughs> oh, going to survive the Jameis injury? You know, but 
those were the days. I, I loved the, my time at SI, and I caught it at a good time, just before things got a little crazy, and the gamer was kind of uh, just aside for, you know, pop, quick little stories as opposed to in-depth feature-length writing. And I every time I tell you every time you say it, I appreciate it. I'll just say that it never gets old hearing that someone, uh, especially someone like you, still appreciates uh, the written word and things I tried to bring to a story. We we joke around on here that there's this list of people who probably regret that I got their phone number, and it's probably a good thing that you don't cover games anymore because <laughs> <laughs> you might you might slowly have got been rising on the list of people who regret. Uh, that they got my that I got their phone number. If you were going to be at you know Saints games like this week's, uh, but listen, I always appreciate you like so much. Thank you for everything. Anything else you want to plug or anything like that? Oh, uh, you know what? I'm I'm enjoying my time at Golf Channel. I'm looking forward to some new adventures in uh, 2021 with NBC Sports. Uh, hopefully, be a part of the Olympic coverage, and also have launched the wine Instagram page, Goat yeah. and Grapes. Um, on the, the intersection of sports and wine and hope to have some projects from that as well. Is Connecticut, I'm, I think I know the answer, but is Connecticut a better or worse spot for wine than Florida? You know what? I'm going to say better oh. only because I think, I, I think it's better in terms of the consumer, the consumption. And, and, and I, I look at my wine consumption through the golf clubs in a lot of ways. And these golf clubs are old school, wing foot, Westchester, Quaker Ridge. Um, they've got some pretty cool wine cellars in a lot of these old line golf clubs. So uh, Florida was good to me, but I think uh, I'm going to discover some gems here in, in Connecticut as well. Is your dream retirement like having some kind of like in Northern California, some kind of, um, I don't know what you call it, you know, this kind of this kind of home where you got all this land and you're growing things yeah. and making your own, the hack bottle of wine. Uh, you can't call it hack Either. wine because people think it, <laughs> think it, they'll be like, what a hack? I don't want no hacks wine. You know, I want some good they'll shit. They'll swill. Yeah. <laughs> I'd love to have that estate or villa somewhere. Villa. The, That's the word I know, was looking for. Mountain. You know, in Napa. In Napa, yeah. Either that or, or a ski home in, in Utah or Colorado. But oh. uh, I'd take any and all of the above uh, if somehow my wine, uh, uh, you know, connoisseurship somehow brought me to uh, to have even a part-time place out west. All right, Damon, thank you so much. Enjoy the uh, Thanksgiving next week and uh, the holidays. You and the boys and your wife have a good one, and we'll be in touch soon. After that documentary, i got to have you back. we got to do the, the, the Tiger Pod. Oh, let's make it happen, Steve, and, and happy holidays to you and yours, and I look forward to our next chat. I want to thank Damon Hack and Bob McKenzie for being on the podcast today. Don't forget you can listen to today's episode and all episodes of the Sportscasters on our SoundCloud page. It's SoundCloud. 
is the app or the website or whatever you'd like to call it. Sports-Casters is our handle there. So it's soundcloud.com slash sports-casters. You can also find us on Twitter at sports underscore casters. And please email me, the sportscasters at gmail.com. I respond to every and all emails. Uh, don't forget about my friend, Peter Winson, whose great podcast, Greeting from Allentown, is available wherever you find podcasts. And of course, you can find him on Twitter. It's at GF Allentown Pod. And on his feed, you can find not only Greetings from Allentown, but also Greetings from Allentown Live with the great Keithy. And you can also find the Adams Division podcast, a side project that Peter and I do together. Uh, Also, I wanted to mention the 24-inch podcast has its own Twitter as well, at 24-inch podcast uh, there to find out the latest information about my newest podcast. Again, it's at the number two, the number four-inch podcast. And a quick shout-out to my friend Adrian Dater. You can find him on Twitter, at Dater. I know he has specials going on right now for his site. If you want to subscribe for a year, there's a Black Friday, Cyber Monday type of thing going on on his site for that right now. So I thought I'd mention that. All right. With all that said, one last thing from me today. And, you know, I mentioned that in the open that Eddie Van Halen's son, Wolfgang Van Halen, has a new song, his first release of his own music, and it's called distance and he's calling his band mammoth wvh Uh, that was one of the original names of van halen and then of course he tacked on the wvh part which is a cool name i think cool logo a cool nod to the history of van halen and the song distance is a tribute to his father who passed away in october of cancer and i gotta tell you that the video is amazing first of all it starts off with a clip of a young Wolfie running up the stairs and his dad saying, you know, we got to make this studio for you. And, you know, they love each other. It's just a really great clip. And the whole the whole video is that. It's just all these interactions that Wolfie had with his dad and, you know, ends with a voicemail. His dad left him saying he just wanted to hear his voice. And the song is really good, by the way. And he put out one other song. Well, it hasn't been officially released, but he played another song when he was on Stern, which sounded great, too, more of a rocker. I'm really looking forward to this album coming out and hearing these songs. And it's done great. The response has been great. It's, you know, been number one on the iTunes music chart. And I don't mean rock. I mean all songs. So it's done really well. And Paula loves it. And uh, I've been teaching Paula about Van Halen. And she's really caught on. She loves Panama. She loves Jump. She loves Dreams. She loves Best of Both Worlds. And she really loves this Wolfie song, Distance, and loves the video. And, you know, I'm going to be honest, listening to Wolfie do all these interviews he's done, it's had me think about the relationship that I have with my father. And, you know, my parents were divorced when I was really young, and I have very few memories of my parents being together. So the divorce wasn't really a big deal to me because that was just my life, really, was that, you know, I had divorced parents. And... I live with my mom and, you know, she got remarried when she, when I was five. And, you know, that's a whole other one last thing for another time. Because uh, he wasn't the best stepfather, that's for sure. But, you know, 
I never had a day where like there was there was never a thing like a custody battle or anything like that. Like if I wanted to go to my dad's and my dad was available, I could go to my dad's. If I didn't want to go to my dad's, you know, I didn't have to go to my dad's. You know, it was always like that. You know, they never fought over what child support or anything like that, you know. But you know, I'll be honest, my dad was not the best dad in the beginning. And here's the thing though, he was a kid. You know, and I understand that now. You know, my parents my dad was born in February of 1959 and he had me in September of 1980. And I can't imagine what I would have been like if I had a kid at that age. And you know, and I think it wasn't now looking back. It wasn't that he wasn't a good dad, it's that he was still learning how to be a dad. You know, and look at my favorite day of the week for years and years was Saturday. You know, I will wake up and be so excited for him to come and pick me up at noon and so excited for the time we spent together. We did so many great things. You know, we would go eat Ted's hot dogs together. We would, you know, the first thing we usually did when he picked me up on a Saturday is go eat lunch. And we had our favorites, Ted's hot dogs, Elton's, Burger King sometimes, you know, whatever. We would go see movies together all the time. I remember we seen License to Kill, Back to the Future 3. Um, you know, all kinds of great movies. Probably some I shouldn't have been going to at the time. You know, but my dad would take me anyway and watch him with me. You know, I'd stay over the night. He lived with my grandma. Then he started to live with his girlfriend. Then he had his house. And wherever he lived, I'd stay the night. And, you know... I think what it was is that I wanted more, but my dad also worked second shift, you know, so during school time, you know, I'd be at school and he's off, then I get home and he goes to work and then I'm in bed by the time he's off work. So I'd never seen him during the week, you know, so it really was only the weekend. And then when I got like to high school, got more serious with hockey, things like that, he, you know, would not. I would miss that time and we wouldn't see each other as much, you know, but one thing I'll say about my dad and why I think that I changed it to learning is because every year of my life, he's been a better dad than he was the year before. And, you know, there was one thing, you know, like he didn't really come to my hockey games. He once told me, you know, that he pays for me to play and when someone starts paying for me to play then he'll come watch and I remember that really hurt my feelings and then he came to a game on a Saturday and I had scored two goals before he even had a chance to take his jacket off I was kind of like just wanted to show him that I you know I was a good player and what he was missing and that he should be at every game and you know really wanted to show him that you know and there were times Look at, and again, I think he he was a kid and I was a kid, you know, and and then what would happen too is if something say happened during the week and I'd be upset with him or he'd be upset with me or whatever, then the weekend would come and we would never deal with it. And I I know my, my mom was frustrated with him one time that he didn't discipline me about something. And he said to her, you know, we only get to spend one day together a week and I don't want to spend that time. And now I understand that, you know, and I didn't at the time. You know, I think we both, whatever it was, we just forget it. 
and instead choose to enjoy the time we had together. You know, and then here's the thing. By the time I got to college, it all really started to change. You know, my dad always has been there for me. If I needed money for a book, needed help moving into my dorm, needed help with a car, you know, whatever. But we would still bump heads once in a while. I remember we had this blowout at my grandma's house one time. And I don't remember exactly what it's about, but I remember I actually said to him he was a bad dad. And I remember my grandma being in the middle of it, and it's probably the worst fight we ever had. And I think what I was upset about was that I was always supporting his music and the things in his life. And I didn't feel like he was supporting the things, my passions. You know, I, he's still the only real important person in my life that's never been to a Pearl Jam concert with me. You know, he was there when the Saints won the NFC Championship game, but for some reason he went somewhere else for the Super Bowl. And I never understood that. You know, why would you want it? You go to a Super Bowl party every year. Why wouldn't you want to come to watch this game with me? You know, so there's some things that I don't understand, still wouldn't understand. But here, but here's the here's the thing though, is every single year he became a better dad. And I would not be where I am today without him, especially through my illnesses. He's been there every surgery. You know, do I need you for an appointment? And now with Paula, watching Paula, helping with Paula, I would have never got through 2019 without my dad. You know, problems with the government, with my Social Security. Dad, I might need a lawyer. Okay, call this guy. Tell him to send me the bill. I don't want you to worry about that. You know? And also, by the way, I don't know what happened or how, but we appreciate, we we make sure we tell each other that we love each other. We appreciate each other more, I think, you know. And I was thinking about, you know, this song, Wolfie's song made me, made me think about the fact that my dad is not immortal, Right. And it made me really think about our relationship, the good and the bad. And I'm kind of trying to articulate it now. And I hope I didn't spend too much time or put too much on the bad because it wasn't really that bad. There were times I wanted more and there were times that our his schedule, the way his work schedule was really difficult and be, not living together and his work schedule was really tough because, like I said, I wake up in a different house, in a different neighborhood, go to school. By the time I get home from school, he's starting work. By the time he gets done with work, I'm going to sleep. So that was difficult. So I think that it was just wanting more and also him being a kid. You know, I had Paula when I was 36 years old. You know, when I was 30, when he was 36 years old, I was like 15. And that's just so different, so different, you know, and I know this, though, I have taken my dad for granted, you know, and the more I think about it, I realize what a great dad he's become and what a great grandfather he is. You know, he's so good with Paula and I wouldn't have expected it for some reason. And I think the reason I wouldn't have expected it because 
I was thinking back to the guy he was when I was two, three. And I was thinking like, oh, he don't like babies or, you know, whatever. I don't know. But he's been an amazing grandpa. You know, Paula is crazy about him. You know, and I remember I had this day a few years ago, and I think I talked about it on here, where my mom kind of almost died, I guess. She had a some kind of bowel blockage, and she, she was laying on the floor in the bathroom. She basically had no blood pressure. And I remember thinking, like, that day, like, this cannot be the last day I have a mother. And thank God it wasn't. And this song that Wolfie put out has really had me thinking about what he's going through, not having a father. You know, and my dad's in his early 60s and, geez, hopefully he can live 25 years more easily. You know, but I was thinking like, what if he doesn't? Have I told him how much I appreciate him? Have I appreciated him enough? Have we said the things to each other that we need to say? What would I regret? What would be my regret or regrets if he was gone? You know, and some of these things are unanswered questions. But I wanted to share it with you and be honest about it. And say that, like, we all need to do this. You know, 2020, it's this notorious year, right? And a lot of people have lost people. Not just coronavirus, but, like, any year that happens. You know, I think, like, 600,000 people die in this country every year. It's a lot of empty empty chairs at the kitchen table, I guess. You know, and, and the thing about it is we don't know. I don't know if I'll have 25 years or 25 minutes with my dad still. And and this song and this video has made me think, you know, does he know? The other day he came here on a Saturday and sat with me in the podcast room and we changed the board out, put a new board in, played with the mics, just had a good day together, watched some videos. And I feel like a day like that is something I just appreciate so much, you know. And I regret that I said that to him that day at my grandma's because it wasn't true. It was just emotion at the day, whatever we were arguing about, silliness. But he's been a great dad. You know, he's been this guy who probably could have mouthed it in, who at 21 years old was not ready to be a dad, didn't know anything about being a dad. And instead of just staying that way, got better at it every single year of my life. He's been a better dad than he was the year before. You know, and here I am just into my journey. I have a four-year-old daughter and I think I'm doing good. You know, but I want to be that way too. No matter how good I am right now, I want to be a better dad every year. I want to do that too. I don't want to take for granted how good I'm doing. I don't if I'm not doing good, I don't want to stay bad. You know, and who knows, really only Paula can say. But I don't know, think about your relationship with your dad. You know? Wolfie Wolfie has certainly made me stop and consider it. 
You know, he's made me think. You know. Does he know? Does he know how I feel? Does he know how much I appreciate everything that he's done for me financially? You know. Intangible. Things he's done for my daughter, for my wife. When I'm not available. Does he know? And if he was gone tomorrow, would there be regrets and what would they be? And how can I make sure that they're not, they don't stick around. But anyway, hopefully you heard this. And if he did, he knows how great of a dad I do think he is. And how much I appreciate him and how much I love him. Face.